We are jumping right back into Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. The title of the sermon today is The Dead Now Live. The Dead Now Live. And we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, studying verses 4 and 5. But what we're going to do is we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 5 so that we can uh, remind ourselves of the context that we're entering into this week. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I'll be reading and, and teaching from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB translation. All the scripture should come up on the screen uh, as, as needed. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. And here's our passage today, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come now before you together as your people, as the church, and we submit ourselves to your word, to this eternal truth that you have spoken. We ask you, God, to teach us, instruct us. Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, that you would lead me as I speak. God, that we would not just understand Scripture, but we would receive it and walk it out, that we would be changed by your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, William Golding wrote his famous book, The Lord of the Flies, in the early 1950s. And in this book, he presents an interesting perspective and insight into the savagery that seems inherent in humanity. And uh, if, you've, if you didn't take ninth grade and didn't read this book for whatever reason, uh, this book follows the story of a group of British schoolboys uh, who become marooned on a deserted island. And Golding details the struggle that these boys have uh, to establish power in order to work for the common good. He, he talks about the struggles that they had to work together um, to, to establish uh, goodness, wholeness uh, um, for everybody without descending into individualistic anarchy, which just seemed to be uh, lurking around every corner. After writing this book, Golding confessed his confusion over the natural state of the human condition. He said this. He goes, I am by nature an optimist and by intellectual conviction a pessimist. In his biography, uh, we see a glimpse of what might be the reasoning for this intellectual conflict that he had between optimism and pessimism as it relates to the human condition. He said this. Before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of a social man that a correct structure of society could produce goodwill, and that therefore you could remove all social ills by reorganization of society. But after the war, I did not, because I was unable to. I had discovered what one man could do to another, and I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. 
Now, many of us are by nature, by default, optimistic about humanity or in society as William, William Golding once was. And we all, I think, by experience and intellectual conviction as we live our lives, develop a certain pessimism about humanity. And that's what we looked at last week. That's what the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are about. The Apostle Paul describes that all humans, that all of humanity, apart from Jesus, are these seven things. This is what we looked at last week. That apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead. That apart from Jesus, we're conformed to the patterns of this world. That apart from Jesus, we're deceived by the devil. That apart from Jesus, we're, we're born with a sinful condition, and there's, there's nothing we can do about it. Apart from Jesus, we're slaves to bodily desires, that we're skewed in our thinking. And then finally, the seventh one that, that he lays out in that passage is, apart from Jesus, we are under the judgment and the wrath of God. And Paul gives this honest assessment of our sinful condition apart from Jesus. And it's worse than maybe you had thought. You know, we, we looked at that last week. That on our own, we are hopeless and helpless, he says. On our own, actually, he puts a real fine point on it. He says that we, we once were dead. And this assessment or this diagnosis of our spiritual health is, is dire. But listen, it's necessary. An accurate diagnosis is necessary in order for the sick person to seek an appropriate remedy or an appropriate course of care. Because drastic illness often requires a drastic remedy. Uh, when I was young, I fell ill. And I was diagnosed with, uh, like, a, you know, an intestinal virus, and was told by our pediatrician to go home and rest. A few days later, came back to the pediatrician's office, and same kind of thing. Like, yeah, you know, whatever. Sometimes these things hang on for a while. We went back home to rest, and shortly after that, I was losing consciousness and became very, very ill. My parents brought me to the ER. I was rushed into the ER, and it was determined that my appendix had been infected. And so infected, in fact, that they ruptured, and my entire abdominal cavity was filled with toxins, and it was in my bloodstream, and I was dying of toxemia. And my appendix, having finally ruptured, needed to be removed, and the toxins needed to be removed from my body. And so I was rushed into this emergency surgery, cut wide open, tubes stuck in me every possible place. I was helpless. I was hopeless without the proper diagnosis. I was dying without the proper diagnosis. But once diagnosed, once we knew the extent of my illness, my parents and doctors and surgeons and nurses and medical staff, they were all under, able to understand what was necessary. And they ensured that I received this drastic, radical, long surgery and long recovery that was required for my condition. I still have crazy scars from that. That was, a, that was a very invasive procedure that happened over 40 years ago. And see, we never would have chosen such an extreme surgery without that accurate, extreme diagnosis. My parents had to be willing to hear the full truth. Resting wasn't cutting it. Just trying harder wasn't cutting it. Encouraging me in my sickness wasn't doing any good for me. The proper diagnosis led to the proper remedy. And that's why the Apostle Paul gives such a clear diagnosis of our sin sickness. 
because without a clear diagnosis of the extent of our sin sickness, we are unable to recognize how desperate we are for the drastic remedy that is offered by God. God lovingly shows us our sinful condition so that he can point us to his gracious remedy. And our passage today reveals that our sin and our deadness apart from Christ is not the end of the story. After giving this devastating diagnosis that we are dead in our sins, the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 4 to say these two words, two of the most powerful words in the entire New Testament. He, he gives this crazy diagnosis, and then he says, but God, but God. We were all once dead in our sin, but God. Look at our passage. It says, but God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. That in, the entire passage pivots on those two words, but God. God changes everything. Those two words strongly and sharply declare that God's grace interrupts our downward spiral of sin. God interrupts our natural state and our proclivities. We once were spiritually dead in our sin, the Apostle Paul has said, but God. We were conformed to the patterns of this world, he said, but God. We were once deceived by the devil, but God. We were born with a sinful condition, and there's nothing we could do about it, but God. We were slaves to our sin. We were once skewed in our thinking. We were once under the judgment and wrath of God, he says, but God. You see, in order to see the beauty of the good news, we have to first understand the ugliness of the bad news. And our diagnosis, apart from God, is the worst news possible. But God. In the lowest, darkest places our sin and our life takes us, God reveals to us the best news ever. And that is that the dead are dead, but God has made a way for the dead to now live. The good news is that in Christ, the dead now live. See, this way was made by the mercy and the grace and the love of God. And this news comes to us when we are at our lowest point. God's love is shed abroad in our heart when we are at our most helpless and our most desperate place in life. God offers us everything at the very moment when we realize that we actually have absolutely nothing. Because he says salvation is an act of grace. You didn't figure out how to get into the kingdom of God. You weren't good enough for God to finally extend an invitation into his family. God found you when you were hopeless and helpless and dead in your sin. And it is by grace and grace alone that he extended his salvation. We don't deserve to be saved by God. We have not earned it. We are not entitled to salvation. God created us. We rebelled against God. We see that from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. We've repeated the same patterns. I know at least in my life, I've repeated the same patterns that Eve uh, repeated. 
being deceived by, by Satan, doubting that God is the only source of goodness. Like, yeah, God is good, but gosh, this sure seems good too. Doubting that God is the only source of truth. Like, yeah, I know God is true, but this sort of seems true too. Trying to seek the blessings of God apart from relationship with God, apart from the glory of God, which is always intrinsically tied in the blessings of God. I've sought the blessings of God apart from the presence of God. I've rebelled against God in my sins. And we justly, all of us, rightly, fairly deserve judgment, wrath, and punishment for our rebellion and our sin against God. God should judge us. That's what we deserve. That's what we are entitled to. We are not entitled to grace. By definition, nobody is entitled to grace. That's what grace means. The only thing that we're entitled to is the correct, right, impartial judgment of God. God's justice. And then Paul inserts those two words, but God. What sort of intervention could we possibly expect at that point when we're completely dead? How could God affect real change in the areas of my life where I've tried, but I know that I can't change? I can't even modify them for any length of time. I I don't know how to make a relationship good. I've tried to be a good listener. I, I do really well in one area, and then I drop the ball in the other. How could I possibly discover any hope or any remedy for these things that are impossible in my life? But see, once we come to this place where we understand our deadness and our hopelessness and our brokenness and our sin, our rebellion apart from God, at that point we are able to understand, and this is very important, that God doesn't offer us help. God isn't in the business of helping us, right? He's not like, a, you know, a handout or a hand up. That's, it, it, you can't help a dead person. It, you didn't need help apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you're dead, right? We don't go to morgues and try to help the dead people. Why don't we do that? Because it's absurd. Dead people don't need help. Dead people need salvation. There there needs to be something supernatural that intervenes in their dead, lifeless body that brings them back to life. That's the only hope that a dead person could ever have is that they somehow might encounter a supernatural power and intervention. And that is exactly what God does. He doesn't help us. He saves us. He doesn't offer us a helper. He offers us a savior. God offers us salvation through Jesus. That's why our passage says this. God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. Yeah, verse 5 shows us what God does for us. Made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead. Now, Paul, he, he's been building to this verse. We, we saw it last week. Verses 1 through 3, how he's describing our sinful condition, our broken condition, our helpless and hopeless condition apart from God. And then in verse 4, he's got those two beautiful words, but God. He talks about God's mercy and God's love. And then in verse 5, we finally get to a point where he's, there's some action. There's a verb in there. God offers to save us by grace, even though we're dead. 
The whole passage leads up to verse 5, and that's where we see this action where it says, but God made us alive in Christ. Christian, notice where the verb is placed in that sentence. But God made, God did, God does. Our life comes from God. He's the one that made us alive in Christ. We, we, we've received life from God is what he's saying. God has done the action, the work, the activity of making us alive in Christ. God is able to bring us from death to life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means for us to follow Christ. We don't just change a few beliefs here and there in our life. We're not mostly good and we have God to just kind of help straighten us out in our areas that, that we lack understanding we come from death into life. Salvation's not us working to be a good person and then God kind of like filling in the blanks and taking care of the rest. Salvation isn't us pursuing justice and asking God to help us. God, bless this good thing I'm doing right now. No, salvation is a radical shift from death where there's no pulse and there's no spiritual life into life with a pulse and a purpose and a power. It's a complete transition from death into life. I know not everybody has this crazy testimony story, this powerful story about drugs and Satanism and brokenness and stuff. But listen, every Christian has a radical testimony of a dead person being brought alive in Christ. Every, you're not a Christian if you've not been transferred from your death in sin into new life in Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. There's a radical difference between following Jesus and not following Jesus. Christians are different people than we were before we met Christ and we submitted to Christ. So I was thinking about this. My, my dad uh, passed away. It'll be two years ago, the end of this month. So I've been thinking about him a lot. And I remember one of the things he loved to do is he loved to, uh, with my whole family, not just my huge family, but I don't know if you know, my siblings all have many kids. <laughs> we're, we're, a, we're a scenario everywhere we go. And my, the, my folks used to love to take us to soup plantation to like celebrate things, you know, like eighth grade graduation. We all go to soup plantation. And we always seem to go when it's super crowded and everyone else in there is like above the age of 65. And maybe it's always like that. I don't know. But you enter and you're like corralled down this ginormous salad bar. And then you're released into this like this cornucopia of soups where there's like 12 soups. And then these pasta dish after pasta dish. And then this Greek thing. And then like pizza and bread. And, and then there's like all the desserts and all the baked things. And then there's like the soft serve machine with the toppings and the jello with the toppings on the jello bar. The whole thing. And my dad loved that place. Soup plantations in Camarillo. <laughs> but the thing with soup plantations, people get super intense and serious and competitive when they're in there, right? They're like, you know, like they're going to run out of food at the all-you-can-eat place, you know? <laughs> well, my, my kids and my dad love soup plantation because they, they can browse and pick and choose what they want. That's, that's the whole point of going there. And so what my kids do is they go down the salad. You're forced to walk by the salad bar, mind you. So the only reason they're walking by it is because they make you. And they're like taking croutons and those little teeny ears of corn, which I don't know why they're even there. And then they go over and grab pizza. And then they hit the soft serve. And then if there's room, they're like on the jello, you know? And my dad wants to try all eight varieties of soup, you know, and he's got his whole deal that he wanted to do. 
Everyone was on their own. Individual mission to seek out what they wanted to add to their plate. Listen, it's funny and it's fun to think about those things, but I I realize that so often I I fall into thinking about my Christian life in the same pattern that I think about going to soup plantation. Uh, Like I, I, I treat God like a salad bar sometimes. Like, like Christianity is just us choosing to I'll take a little bit of this or I don't think I want that. Or I guess that's good for me, so maybe I'll try it, right? Like, oh, my pastor says I should, so I'll just taste it or something like that. As if, and if we're not careful, we tend to pick and choose our following Jesus with no need for commitment. And on our own, there, there will be no counting of the cost. We just won't choose things that require commitment or counting the cost. This is how some people think about what it means to be a Christian. It's like browsing a buffet, like God is a salad bar, as if we get to choose what our Christian experience is going to be, right? Like, I'll take an extra helping of grace, but I don't want any conviction, right? I'll take a plate full of love, and then I'll, I'll be one of those guys that, at, you know, that takes two plates, and I want approval on the other plate, God, but I don't want any mission. I don't want any sacrifice. So the Bible says we're dead apart from God's grace, And we're only made alive by what Jesus has done. There's a transference of death into life. There's no picking and choosing for dead people. We don't add what we think we need along the way. A dead person, you don't just add things to a dead person. What they need is salvation. They need to be transformed and changed supernaturally. Our dead lives end in Christ, and we receive new life, a different life in Christ. And so we're not like the rest of the world. We're not like the, the rest of the world, the way they even portray Christianity. Do you believe in God is the question that the world asks. Listen, I, I don't think it matters whether you believe in God or not. What matters is whether you believe God. I mean, the, most people believe in God, especially when things are going really bad in life. But do you believe in God? Do you believe what he said is true? Do you believe his promises are true? Do you trust him and follow him? It's not a matter of what, what you're like, you know, allowing your radical individualistic self to consider. No, I'm a guy who believes in God. Who cares what you believe in? What are you following? What are you believing? It is through faith that we're made alive. It's not just a spiritual death and a spiritual life, although that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. But there's a whole other aspect to it. There's an eternal life, an eternal death. The difference between being alive in Christ and dead apart from Christ is literally the difference between life and death in the deepest sense possible. We either live our lives separated from God or we live our lives in the presence of God in Christ. This is a life that is changed by God. The Bible says we're new creations in Christ. This is a life lived with God. We're brought into the presence of God. We now live for God. There is a purpose to our life. Our lives are now empowered by God. And God is unstoppable. The Holy Spirit is an unstoppable power. That is the power that is within us. So our lives are different. We live with conviction and purpose and faith. And so why does God do this? Why does God do everything? Why does God even hand us and give us this new supernatural life? 
He's, he's done everything necessary for our salvation. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul points out three things about God that help us understand uh, his, his motives, perhaps. Look at, look at our passage. It says, but God, who's rich in mercy, there's the first thing about God that's, that helps us understand. God's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace, which is the third thing. Salvation comes by God's rich mercy, by his great love, and by his saving grace. Now, mercy is God choosing not to give us what we deserve. That, that's, what, that's what mercy is, to hold back what, what should come. The psalmist actually gives the best picture of God's mercy in, that, that I can think of. In Psalm 103, verse 10, he says, Speaking of God, he has not dealt with us as our sin deserves or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the father has compassion on his own children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For, look at this in verse 14, for he knows that we are made of what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. See, mercy speaks of what God doesn't do, even though we deserve it. We deserve to be judged, punished even, separated from God because of our sin. But God, in his mercy, pities us. And it's not just like a, 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 you're going to squeak in like God has just barely enough mercy. It says he has rich mercy for you. God, God is rich in mercy. The Greek word that's used for the word rich in this place, it means limitless or boundless. God has this endless mercy that he showers upon us. And the second thing the Apostle Paul talks about here is grace. Verse 5, it says that it is by God's grace that we are saved. Saving grace. Literally, it means that God's grace delivers us from death. The grace and mercy. Now, grace and mercy might seem similar because we're, we're not often distinguishing them, but they're actually pretty different. Mercy pities and holds back, which we've spoken about. But see, grace actually pardons and releases. And so we're met by, gra we're met by mercy, the mercy of God, and then we're extended and given grace through Christ. Mercy withholds God's judgment and grace releases God's forgiveness. Mercy holds back what we deserve. And grace gives us what we don't deserve, lavishing on us what we don't deserve. Grace means that in spite of our sin, in spite of our trespass, in spite of, in spite of our worldliness and slavery to our desires and disobedience and conforming to the thinking of the world, all those things we talked about last week, grace means that God steps in and adopts us into his family as his very own children, even though we are guilty of all of that. God doesn't adopt you into his family because you finally cleaned your act up. God adopted you into his family because he met you with mercy and he extended grace to you. And why does God do this? Where does this grace and mercy come from? In this passage, Paul makes it clear. God's rich mercy and his saving grace come from God's great love. And the apostle John actually just declares this beautiful thing about God. Uh, when he talks about the love of God in 1 John chapter 4, he actually declares that God is love. Listen to this passage, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. The apostle John speaking, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, 
Because love is from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. That means that God opposes sin, opposes disobedience, opposes unholiness. All of that is true about God, and still God comes to us as sinners with mercy and grace. Why? Because as our passage says in verse 4, but God who's rich in mercy because of his great love. God loves us. This is a love that's beyond comprehension. Now, we all know a a form of love in this life. We sort of know what love is, and and we feel like we love certain things or loved by people. But we tend to love what is lovable. We tend to only love that which is beneficial or helpful. We love what is attractive, maybe, what will help us achieve our goals. We love those things. But God does not love like we love. In fact, God loves the opposite of how we love. God loves us while we are absolutely opposed to him, Scripture teaches. God loved us while we were opposed to everything that was good, everything that was right, everything that was decent. And even though God has declared his glory and his goodness and has invited us to worship him through very creation, even even in light of that, and it says that there is no excuse, it says in the book of Romans, for us to rebel against God. Even in light of that, we chose to pursue the blessings of God apart from the relationship and the worship of God living in complete rebellion, it was at that moment when God revealed his love to each one of us. This love is beyond comprehension. God does not love like we love. Paul simply refers to this love. Rather than describing it here, he calls it God's great love. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, about God's love, he says this, that God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's immense love is best seen in this gift that he's given to us in Christ, the gift of his very own son. He gives up his own son to die horrifically on a cross for people who were completely opposed to everything that was attractive to him. See, God doesn't love things that benefit him or things that are attractive to him. God goes after those things that are opposed to him. He loved us despite the fact that we were stiff-arming him. God chose to resurrect dead people to full spiritual life. God went all in when he saved us. He did this by sending his perfect, blameless son to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus came as a sinless man and and was nailed, offered his own body as a sacrifice, was nailed to a sinner's cross, not just a sinner's cross, but a criminal's cross, a cross that belonged to a habitual murderer or a habitual thief, someone who who the system had completely given up on. It was only the lowest of the low in society that would have been crucified. Jesus surrendered himself as God, never having sinned, never having offended anyone, took our place, the sinner's death on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus defeats the power of sin. 
Now, he doesn't just defeat the power of sin that controls us in life. Jesus defeated also the power of sin that separates us from God. He bore, as it says in the Gospels, the full wrath of God, having been separated from the Father by taking our sin upon himself. God went all in to save us. And then Jesus offers up his life, taking our sins into the grave. And he's laid as a corpse, as a dead body, right? Substituting, substituting his body, which could not be killed. A body which had not succumbed to the physical effects of sin like ours had, have. This perfect body. Jesus offers up his life with the sin of the world, taking our sin into the grave. And just as he predicted, he pulls off his own resurrection, rising from the grave, leaving sin and death and the deceitful power of Satan in the grave and rising to new life. Hundreds of people saw Jesus, followed Jesus. The church was birthed from the resurrected Jesus, calling men and women into the nations. Go, therefore. Church, that is where we find ourselves. That is where the, the stroke of history has invited us. God himself was placed in a grave. God meets us right where we are. He is pursuing you. You have to hear this today. God is longing to exchange your dead life for new life. This is the good news. This is the gospel, that we can be born again in Jesus, that the dead now live. Only Jesus can bring dead people back to life. Only Jesus can bring the spiritually dead to life. Only Jesus can remove the debt of our sins. Only Jesus can rightly deal with our shame and our guilt and our brokenness and our offensiveness. Only Jesus can deal with our addictions and our pride and our anger and our mouth. Only Jesus can breathe life into spiritually dead lungs. And Paul changes the whole tone, or the whole tone of our identity apart from God by those two words, but God. Those two words represent God's ability to completely turn a hopeless situation around. But God, those two words represent God's ability and desire to interact and intercede and interrupt our downward spiral of sin. What that means is, man, if your marriage has been broken for so long that you've become hopeless and cynical, listen, but God. If your life seems like it's going nowhere or it's falling apart, listen, but God. If you feel enslaved to a particular sin or your addiction is controlling your life, your addiction is ruining your relationship, your addiction seems like this power and this compulsion and this thing that identifies you, listen, but God. Apart from Jesus, we're dead in our sins, dead, helpless. Ancient Hebrew would have said we are dead, dead. Paul says, but God. God loves us so much. He loves us so much. He wants to exchange that brokenness for a new life. Jesus not only sets us free from the slave market of sin, Jesus gives us a brand new life. He doesn't just give us a brand new life. He also gives us access to and an invitation to a life that is lived in the presence of God. We are no longer separated from God because of sin. We are now brought into the Holy of Holies, into that place that used to be separated by a veil, which was torn by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God adopts us into his family as his own, as his children. And so receiving God's gift of salvation 
receiving this gift of new life means that we're receiving a new identity. We're receiving an identity as a child of God, having been chosen by God and adopted by God into his family. In Jesus, we are kingdom kids, welcomed into the family of God, into the presence of God, loved into the presence of God, enjoyed even by the Father. Through Christ, your Father in heaven knows you, knows what you're capable of, forgives you, right, as an act of grace, and enjoys you and pursues intimacy with you, enjoyed by the Father as his very own child. Listen, church, while the diagnosis of our sin and death is bad, okay, it's as bad as it gets. Our diagnosis of our sin sickness is like stage four and a half cancer. It is a bad diagnosis. What is also true is God's remedy is much better than we could ever hope or ever imagine. The dead are brought into true life. Listen, the dead now live in Jesus Christ. And so Christian, today is a day that we rejoice, that we rejoice in our salvation. Praise God for all that he has done. It is good for us to take an account of all the things that God has done in our life. It is good for us to remember that we were dead and lost and helpless and hopeless. It's valuable for us because of those two words, but God, and that's what causes us to worship. And we recognize that that God has completely eliminated shame. He has completely eliminated my identity, identifying myself with my weakness, identifying myself with an addiction, identifying myself with my actions, identifying myself by my best efforts. God has completely released me from identifying myself with brokenness, completely released me from the power of other people's sin over me in my life and the shame and the brokenness and the things I try to hide about myself. God has broken that and given me a brand new life in Jesus. That is who you are if you find yourself in Christ today. As a Christian, that is a gift that is given to you. God didn't give you two-thirds of the gift, and he's holding back that blessing. That is who you are in Christ, Christian. And so we rejoice. Receive that today. Maybe you need to hear that and receive that, and, but rejoice in that. That is who you are. Enjoy your new life in Jesus. Today, maybe you find yourself in a grave, figuratively speaking. Maybe you find yourself in a life that just, no matter what you do, you're you're afraid the old patterns are going to come back. You've been trying really hard, but you you know it's just a matter of time. You're trusting that person, but you, you know there's not real change there. Listen, there is new life available in Jesus. If you find yourself dead in a grave, you have to know there's life available in Jesus today. God is calling you to himself. You need to hear that God loves you and he has done everything to bring you to himself. When you hear that, God loves you, respond to his love today, you're like, yeah, but, and you're thinking about yourself. Listen, it has nothing to do with you. Your salvation was settled 2,000 years ago on a cross. God chose to save you before the foundations of the earth, before you could get to that low, low place where you maybe find yourself, or that low, low place where your identity and your shame and your guilt and, your, and things are just pegged on that one place where you went. Listen, let God break that chain. Let God give you a new identity in Christ today. There is new life available in Jesus. Yeah, praise God.
Today, God wants to take your guilt and your shame. God wants to to deal with your addiction. God wants to deliver you from anxiety, from fear, from brokenness. Your brokenness and your sin is not too much for God to handle. You are not too far gone. You are not too far broken. You You haven't asked God for help one too many times. God is here today, and he wants to meet with you, and he wants to transfer you from a hopeless kingdom of death into a new life in Jesus Christ. The Bible says if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Man, let today be the day of salvation. Let God do that work of salvation in your heart today. Let today be the day that the dead come to life. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so good and rich. It is so good to allow your truth to wash over us, God. It is so good to hold your truth up to what we experience and see in our life and in culture around us and to find real hope in what is true. Father, this morning I pray for your children, your sons and daughters, who today you look at and you find in Christ and you are well pleased with them. Pray, God, that as Christians we would celebrate and rejoice and worship you as our Father. And for our friends, those who have who've been brought near but haven't been taken in, God, I pray today that they would receive your free gift of love, that they would receive your salvation, that they would receive this gift of life that is offered through Jesus Christ today. Pray today, God, that burdens would be lifted. As Jesus invited the broken and the weary to come to him, I pray today, God, that the broken and weary would come to Christ. Be glorified. Holy Spirit, have your way as we worship you. Let's connect the truths that we sing and declare now with the reality of our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you need prayer this morning, men and women are going to be up here on the sides. I would love to pray with you. If God is leading you to make a decision to, to follow Jesus, if God is saying, hey, I have new life for you, today is the day, come, come and pray with us. Or, or Pray with the person that brought you here. Come get on your knees on the carpet. Christians, come and celebrate. Worship. Worship and bow down before our maker. Communion elements are up here on the front of the stage. If you want to respond by participating and remembering the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, come and enjoy communion together. But let's respond in worship to God today.